Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 310 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And as always, I am excited that you're joining us today. We have seen the reports, the articles on how Americans are not having sex and how kind of like the sexual life of people have been declining. And there was this few years old Washington Post article on this, which the title was the share of Americans not having sex has reached a record high. And I've seen the different version of this story. And I invited one of my wonderful colleague and friend, Dr. Ali Mushtaq, to come and talk about the possible reasons. Is that accurate? Is this not accurate? He has a PhD in sociology and I'm a psychologist. So it's interesting to talk about it from different perspectives. In this episode, we're going to talk about how whether this claim is accurate or not. We're going to talk about why we think that that is the case. Also, we're going to talk about if this is a global trend or it's mostly happening in the United States. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of having less sex. And also we're going to talk about the clinical implications. So if you're working with people, your sex therapist, psychologist, medical provider, we're going to talk about what does that mean for, for you and for me, because I'm also a clinician. Our guest, as I mentioned, is Dr. Ali Mushtaq. Dr. Mushtaq has his PhD in sociology from University of California, San Francisco, and master's in social and demographic analysis from University of California, Irvine. He's Mr. Long Beach Letter 2016 and has been profiled by numerous editorial, including the New York Times. Ali has also written several scholarly articles that focuses on race and sexuality. He's also a former college professor and has taught numerous courses that have focused on sexual identity and research method. Currently, he is co-authoring a book on Black women AIDS activists and is on contract with Lexington Press. He has his own website that you can check him out. It's called Getting Wolfy. The link will be in the show notes. Before we go to the episode today, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Aria. Aria is a couple wellness concierge that inspire you to explore sexuality, intimacy, and your fantasy. It's a really cool company that gives you kind of education on how to bring excitement back to the bedroom, like bite-sized messages. And also it will send you a package to fulfill those fantasies. I just experimented with the package today and at the end of the episode, I will tell you all about my experience of what I like about it, what was it felt like. So if you're interested, make sure you are checking out our outro and you can find it at aria.fyi. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ali Mushtaq. 
Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome one of my favorite guests, Dr. Ali Moshtaq. Dr. Ali, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, I'm very excited about this conversation. I know we briefly chat about this. That we, We've been hearing that people are saying that Americans are having less sex and it's a trend. Some people talk about it being related to different age group. How accurate is that claim? that the Americans are not having sex. So what caught my attention when I first started seeing a bunch of news articles about this was I've been actually seeing data about this since 2015, where there was a study done at San Diego State University by these group of researchers. And they were talking about how millennials were having less sex compared to their Gen X and boomer counterparts. And so I thought, okay, like maybe that's like a blip in the radar, like maybe there's something going on. And then most recently, the Washington Post came out with a brief news article citing a citing findings from the General Social Survey. And, it, and the General Social Survey is a survey that's done to sort of look at a large amount of people and their social attitude and, term, and it investigated their sexual habits. And apparently what they're saying, especially for the younger kids is, our younger folks is that among the 23% of adults or nearly one in four who spent the year in a celibate state, a much larger, larger expected number of them were 20-something men, according to the latest data from the General Social Survey. So again, like the, I, so, and this was, I think, maybe a year ago or two where these results were published. So I think this idea that we're having less and less sex, you know, is starting to kind of become pronounced in the data. And I think it's actually really interesting. I think obviously from a sex therapist point of view, but also from the perspective of larger demographic trends. And like what that, what's that going to do to our overall population and all those other things? So I think we have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> well, I am very excited about that. So you, you're right. I assume that at the beginning, we we're not sure that if it's a kind of a across the board with different population, but it seems like it's trending that way. And what's very interesting to me is that this is the generation that grew up with social media, with exposure, with kind of like having access to all sorts of explicit material. And now you say that even one out of four are remaining celibates. What's what's the meaning that you make out of it? What do you think are some of the contributing factors? So I think there are a lot of factors. So I, I briefly looked at other factors before talking today. And I have some background in demography. So something that obviously would pop up is like birth rate, right? So apparently like, you know, birth rates are declining, I, I think, especially in the Western world. And it was interesting because like there was one organization that said something about how like, you know, it, it's not necessarily all about, you know, one or two factors, but rather there's a multitude of factors that are sort of affecting the reasons why people aren't giving birth or, or the birth rate not increasing. So I think it's really fascinating because like we're looking at these overall demographic replacement trends. So then the question is like, you know, are we looking at questions about economics? Are we looking at questions about gender relations? Are we looking at questions about sexual freedoms and attitudes? Are we looking at questions about... So, I mean, there's a multi-pronged approach where we can kind of look at this from. I mean, even like with current trends with like Gen Z and like how they deal with stress and how they deal with all these other pressures, like for example, looming financial collapse and all these other factors that could possibly impact the the reason why like we're seeing this in the survey. And I see so you're right that it's part of it is related to kind of like the outcome would be related to the population decline. And also it's it's kind of interpersonal dynamics. I know that even one of the kind of like a prediction that people have that with during COVID 
during lockdown, the porn use will drastically increase. And that wasn't the case. And as a psychologist, I wonder, again, part of it, it's related to kind of like people at times, they're kind of like their freedom. I, I wonder if come, at times come with the liberation of giving themselves permission to be able to kind of have the sexual experience that they want or not have the sexual experiences that they want. So I wonder that that is part of it. But what, why do you think people are not having sex if, if going based on that data? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things could be the thing. So let's just assume that hypothetically people are having less sex. You know, let's just make that assumption right there. Possibly what could constitute sex might be changing for some folks. So so like, for example, like, you know, just kind of thinking about the idea, like, so maybe like, for example, they think that maybe oral intercourse is very different than penetrative intercourse, where like there's some kind of insertion happening, or maybe it's a possibility that, you know, we're defining sex in a different way. So for example, what if some folks consider that like, like, for example, maybe mutual masturbation, like they're still engaging in some kind of sexual activity, but they don't consider it sex or something. So they're not going to report report that at least, you know, from a data, you know, definitional perspective, maybe like these attitudes are changing, possibly. It's also another possibility, I think that there's a question about identity. So for example, that ace identities, and maybe that's something that's becoming more prominent. And Maybe there are people that are finding ways to stimulate themselves erotically without necessarily having another sexual partner. That could be another thing too. Maybe like so for example, I know that like, you know, there are countless fetishes and countless kinks where people like can engage but not necessarily have penetrative sex. And so maybe that's the way that they're sort of defining their bodies and their their sexual autonomy. But again, like this, there, there could be a lot of other factors as well. Just simply, you're too depressed to have sex, <laughs> you know, with the increases in like depression and all those other things. Well, I think that that is so true that like with its positive trend that now these days, the movement is toward kind of like broadening the definition of sex. Sex could be you having kind of sexual experiences with yourself, with a partner, with someone that's kind of like you're using teledildonic and there are an, another continent. There's just so many different options out there. You're right. It's possibly it de- depends on how they're kind of like defining sex. And the other part is kind of going back to the ACE identity. I think there has been so many great effort around giving people kind of like comfort to be able to identify if they're identifying as asexual and talking about the broad spectrum of that. That's that's also important. And also, I don't know what's a mental wellness, as you mentioned, that mental health trends has been, I can definitely see during COVID with stress, depression, anxiety, all those things that can impact our sexual desire. So that that could be also another factor, as you mentioned. But some people, when they're anxious, they want more sex. Some people want less sex. So but it's it's interesting. That's that's the finding that they had in that study. Do you think it's a global trend or it's mostly something that's happening in the United States? I think we can only kind of speak to what's happening in the U.S. and the Western world for now. But I think that, again, like because different cultures will interpret sex and sexuality differently, that there's a possibility that maybe they're redefining sex in ways that we might not necessarily be aware of. And we're only speaking to very Western issues, I think, in this particular case, especially with the ace identity, because, again, like, 
you know, the way that we understand like ace identities are probably very different than say someone in Iran, where like, for example, maybe they just don't feel like having another partner, but they won't call it, they won't say that they're ace or something. So it, it, it just really depends upon both awareness and cultural context. It's like maybe, you know, maybe there might be some other aspect of sexuality that we as, you know, people that live in the United States might not necessarily see right away. So, yeah, that's just sort of what I would think about it. Well, that makes sense. And also, as far as a research study, it's kind of the safety of people acknowledging that they have sex. I know, for example, in some countries, premarital sex is a crime. Right. So if, if there is a, a university study and you're kind of face to face with the person, it's less likely for you to kind of acknowledge that versus is a, it's, if it's a survey or kind of acceptance of different types of sexuality around the world is different. And another interesting thing is this concept of recreational versus procreational sex, right? In the cultures that I can imagine, the idea of sex is kind of like procreation, then it would be interesting to see if there has been a change or not. Because I would imagine in the United States, most states, the idea like it's completely okay for people to have recreational sex, at least majority of the places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, but but then there's also then the question of like, then if that sex isn't then happening, then what is happening to the US and like the Western world as a whole? and their attitudes about sex and sexuality. Because I mean, I think you and I are kind of brought up in the era of like, well, sex is pleasure, sex is, you know, being able to have recreation. And I think, you know, historically, we can kind of tie that back to, again, the decoupling of sex and sexuality from reproduction over the last, like, maybe, you know, 50 to 100 years prior to the sexual revolution. And then at that point where you have, like, for example, women's orgasms being, quote unquote, discovered the clitoral orgasm as opposed to the vaginal one, right? That's where then we kind of then see, no, that's where our kind of, you know, mindset is. But then I think going forward into the next 20 years, it might be then a little bit different or like that idea of having and owning one sexuality for pleasure's sake or even reproduction's sake might not even be a thing. And I think that this is then important for clinicians to understand because it's like, is this a question about trauma? Is this a question about anxiety? Is this a question about individual things that people are working out? Or is this simply like people might not be reporting it maybe? Like that might be a thing. Like maybe they're just not reporting they're doing and they're doing it. But then there's also the question of like, you know, what then clinicians can do or what can those folks who are in sex therapy do to continue to help people around these things? Because it's like, the I guess the impulse I think will continue, but I just then think, the question of like being able to help people recognize the impulses and have, help them guide them to where they kind of need to be with the impulses. So I think that's something that might be incredibly useful for those in the sex therapy field. Well, tell us what do you mean by impulses? Well, just the idea that like there's some kind of urge that's happening to ha- to to engage in some kind of physical or erotic activity. Not necessarily the word sex though, but like just some sort of impulse to do something because I'm trying to use a language that's not necessarily using the word sex because I'm trying to like you know making sure that we're we're adapting to whatever historical or whatever kind of whatever whatever feeling that one might have in order for them to name and and in order to sort of name like what they're doing because it's like if they're not defining it as sex then there might there might be then something that clinicians might have to be aware of when they're helping clients. That is true. And I, I'm also curious about the gender differences, at least with the clients I see with women, with the kind of like being able to be more comfortable with their sexuality, especially women that grew up in Western communities and kind of having access to the sex positive messaging. My understanding is that 
that will help people to kind of like become more comfortable with their sexual self. So it feels like in a contradiction with the finding of that study. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if you look at women's sexuality, I mean, women's sexuality is very broad and open-ended, whereas men tend to be very unipolar. And that's a finding that's been done, that's been said over and over again for the last, like, what, like 30 years, maybe. But especially like what the survey I'm thinking about was a study done by the Williams Institute. As far as I can remember, again, I could potentially mess up the, the specific source. But essentially, like what this survey did was they tried to look at not only sexual identity, but also gender identity in terms of the people having sex and engaging in different kinds of sexual behaviors. And it was interesting because like women tended to define themselves as more open-ended. They tended to do things that are more, the, the, they, some, some, they saw themselves more as gender fluid. And then they also started to do things when, do things that men typically didn't do. Like, for example, like men are very like one directional when they come to sex. So it's like either, so for example, like engage in same sex or opposite sex for behaviors, whereas with women, it's very much a, a broad spectrum, regardless if they identify as straight, lesbian, queer, or whatever. And hence, actually appropriating even the label of the use of queer, simply because that it, it sort of defines and encapsulates that broad range of sexuality. And hence, going back to the question of you know not having sex, it's like, well, then what does that even mean in terms of a queer sexuality for women? And mm-hmm. um, the study that like you looked at it, were they inclusive in all kind of sexual orientation? What what did you find there, or it was kind of like more binary? Yeah, yeah. So what was really notable about this particular study was that it not only looked at women and men, but it also looked at trans people and trans communities and gender nonconforming people. And it was really interesting to kind of see that, for example, with with women, their attractions were like, like, so I think I and then just to the best of my knowledge, like it really was them reporting like, the amount of sex they're having with women, the amount of sex they're having with men, the amount of, like their identities and how they are labeled, like for example, being a lesbian versus queer versus straight and those kinds of things. And then same thing when you look at trans communities, there was a little bit more fluidity there, but it was interesting because when you look at cis men in particular, like they were very unipolar, like very one directional in their behavior. So like men tended to either engage in mostly same sex behavior or men tended to mostly engage in more opposite sex behavior, but they didn't necessarily, there wasn't that much in between, even though the study did report bisexuality within these, within, reported bisexuality within these communities. But for women, there was more gender fluidity, sexual fluidity, that, that was part of it. Well, I, and you know, when I heard about this study, I, I thought that it could be good or bad. So depending on what lens we're looking at. So why mm-hmm. do, what do you think are the, some of the pros and cons of having less sex compared to previous generations? What What's your thoughts on that? Well, assuming that the way that that they're defining sex is a penetrative sex, right? Because again, like we, we're not necessarily clear on like how they're necessarily saying like, is this about penetration or is it not, right? But with that said, assuming it, if it is penetration, basically the idea behind it is that, yeah, I mean, sure, I guess a good advantage is like you'll lower STDs and STIs and those kinds of things. I mean, we all want a little bit less STIs in our life. But at the same time, you know, I think, I, you know, I really think it depends because if this is the way that sexuality and sex trends are going, this, it, it can then mean that people are maybe finding other ways to express themselves erotically, but not necessarily through penetration. So it's not, so I don't necessarily, I really think this is an end to intercourse. I think it's just a redefinition and reinterpretation of how people are experiencing their bodies. And again, I'm trying to stick to as neutral language as possible because, you know, it's not only how people are defining sex that's really important, but it's also the question about 
what necessarily people are doing because then that affects not only you know the clinical level and helping people individually but then it also affects policy changes as well hence questions about birth rate and all those other things and no i'm not i'm i'm never asserting we should go to like this handmade cell reality where you know where you have this like, first <laughs> childbirth thing but at the same time you know it is concerning because because again you have societies like japan with a older age demographic that's largely dominant society where you have high schools being converted to like old senior centers and such like that. So the question is, you know, how is it, how are we able to sustain society if people are not, you know, copulating? So that's just something that I'm, uh, that's just sort of what I was thinking about. Well, that's, that makes sense. And I know your background is in sociology. <laughs> so that, that, that is, did I get that right? Yeah, it is. So it, it, is. It, it makes sense that you're thinking about more on, on also in a societal level and individual level and that, that, that makes sense. And I also agree with you. I think it would be a good thing, right? That like we give people permission to be able to, as you mentioned, experience eroticism in whatever way that they want, kind of like congruent with their erotic template and kind of like, as you said, like opposite of handmade sale that like if women are identified as asexual then, and they don't want to have sex or male identifying or people of all gender, that gives them permission to kind of like be who they are. I, I thought that you had a follow up and I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. Well, just because like, you know, and, and kind of going back on like the whole defining sex and like women's sexuality thing, keep in mind that the way that we define sex is very much based on like male-centric, pelogocentric terms in the sense that like, we always assume that something is being inserted into something. And so I'm reminded of this article, you know, where like, for example, like young teenage girls aren't able to articulate their own sexualities simply because it's not penetrative the, in, the, in the same way, like, for example, like, you know, with women having sex with women kinds of sexual behaviors, like it's not going to necessarily involve, you know, a kind of apparatus at the, you know, unless you're like using a toy or something, it, it's not necessarily going to involve that on the most, you know, the, the most heteronormative definition of, you know, sex and sexuality. So again, like this, the, these, these could be definitional issues that we're running into, not necessarily that it's a question about less frequency, but if it is less frequency, then, you know, we're then dealing with a whole slew of how people have to think about sexuality and how even clinicians have to go about treating this. Because that's why, like, I was sort of like fumbling about like, how do I articulate a a kind of sexuality with, that doesn't involve sex. And so that's something that's really difficult because we're so used to thinking about sex in terms of penetrative terms. And that's why it's like, well, you know, is it an impulse? Maybe it's a way that one experiences one's body. You know, just some, there's some kind of way to kind of articulate what's going on. And that's something that I think clinicians need to kind of consider when they are talking to folks, especially younger folks, when they're talking about their sexualities because and to really probe around for things to be like, you know, if, if, if you're not doing things, you know, sexually, are you do, doing things erotically? And then kind of going that way, because then maybe that could help folks to kind of think about their sex lives and being able to treat any issues that might arise from that. I like that kind of giving people more way of kind of expressing themselves, especially so we are able to kind of like name things that we don't have the language for. For our listeners, how would you differentiate sexuality versus eroticism? So I think, you know, I think that they can be overlapping concepts because I mean, like, for example, I think sex involves a kind of penetration, whereas erotically eroticism and 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 be and doing things that are erotic i think go more for things that feel sensual so like things that feel good that doesn't necessarily involve intuitive sex but then they can also arouse you as well so like the arousal is there but then at the same time it's not necessarily penetrative and by penetrative i mean like there isn't like a a kind of something being inserted into something else 
kind of action or behavior. Well, it makes sense. Like I, I, I know many of our colleagues are tantric practices and they do a lot of sensual things that at times are not kind of like any insertion involved and it's 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 form of eroticism it can be very hot and exciting but it's not about people sometimes traditionally think about sex so that's that's interesting to kind of like have a, that lens about it and the other thought that i had about it is okay if the definition is right and we are kind of like they kind of inclusive with their definition and operational kind of definition of how sex is. And in reality, we're having less sex, kind of quote unquote, kind of procreational sex. What would be an ethical way of remedying that? I know, for example, like, I, and you know that I grew up in Iran and I know post-war, Iran-Iraq war, they started kind of having this propaganda, having children and at times they stop doing genetic testing. So people will have children and they wouldn't terminate children if there are some genetic issues, which of course that's, that is not ethical. But what would be an ethical way of promoting procreational sex? Yeah, and that's actually interesting because, you know, that, that since you mentioned Iran, you know, India is actually doing something similar where like before, like the birth rate was very skewed in terms of men's favor because they would like essentially euthanize like women, babies and stuff like that, like in the, you know, and terminate the pregnancies. But but with that said, you know, I think that like the way to remedy this isn't necessarily to you know, be alarmist about it, but to recognize that sexualities change and just mm-hmm. to realize what we consider sexuality might not be what this next time period considers sexuality. And to remember that like our definition of sex and sexuality are constantly changing because I think that like, you know, because I think that especially with Gen Z, like. We're looking at a huge community of people that are constantly thinking and redefining sex and sexuality in ways that we in in our you know 30s and 40s and 50s might not necessarily be aware of, considering, again, we have that bias of living post in a sexual revolution in America, but also now living in an America that's hearing questions about sexual assault, sexual predation, you know, questions about the Me Too movement questions about consent and the fact that we're being more active about enforcing accountability. I think all of this is very important to considering, you know, the way in which these new sexualities will start to come up. So I don't necessarily for these see this being a, you know, an elimination as opposed to just a redefinition. But in terms of procreation, I mean, if people aren't reproducing, I mean, I I wouldn't know how to get them to start reproducing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe play some very white or something like that and see what happens I love that. And if it, it's even a bad thing, right? I feel like like we have been overusing the resources on Earth. And like maybe like population decline can be the worst thing. So it could maybe create more resources for all creatures on Earth. But I know that's not how people are thinking about it. But I think again, it's, it's interesting to look at it from different lenses. And I know you don't much more than me on gender, identifying gender, gender identities. And I know I was at one of the sex therapy conference and they were talking about how with Gen Z, the number of people who identify as non-binary significantly increased compared to previous generation. What's your thoughts on that? Is it that now we have better labels for, for our identities? Yeah, I, th- I actually think that's 100% true. Because I mean, like, for example, if you look at representation identity, I mean, we've always had people that existed outside the traditional man woman binary. I mean, so for example, like, you know, people talk about rep- LGBT representation media and film. And like, for example, I mean, the people in the 80s had like Boy George and like Annie Lennox growing up, and they were very ambiguous in their gender presentation. 
So it's so I think maybe what might be changing is just the acceptability of, their, of these identities, maybe in such a way where rather than being a performance piece, it's more about who you are. Because I know, for example, even like Lady Gaga was influenced by people like David Bowie and like all those glam punk folks who were very ambiguous. But then like even in a more on a more contemporary level, like we're now seeing the proliferation of artists that are non-binary and queer. And so those kinds of representations give space for people to then express themselves. Whereas I think especially in like the 80s and 70s, like while that kind of experimentation was kind of there. It wasn't necessarily something where it's like, well, I'm going to go into work, like looking like David Bowie in a professional white collar setting kind of thing. So more about the acceptability and the, but, but in terms of the novelty, I don't necessarily think this is novel. I think this is just more, I just think it's just more carving out space for people to exist essentially. But again, like, and especially within the Western world. Yes. I was thinking about that. It's it's wonderful that we had made progress in that front in Western worlds, but definitely I think in other I can talk about like Middle Eastern culture. It's it's like it's very limited definition of gender and gender identity. But I think kind of like going with the same kind of idea of redefining things and also giving people a space to label what what they they identify as. I think with the realm of sexuality also would be very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I even think even in those cultures, like they probably have people that don't necessarily fit like the male female kind of thing or like the man woman kind of thing but they're probably people that sort of somehow get by you know and by being queer or by being you know by being themselves essentially but they won't call it that and so like maybe like for example the discourse might be this is bad but then it's like oh well well, we have you know this person over there that we consider them a man but then that doesn't necessarily mean that they sort of conform to all these stereotypes if that makes sense so it, I think it's also, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that is interesting. And again, it's so unfortunate that again, in some part of the world, like again, like where I grew up, it's it's so challenging for people to be comfortable with who they are and kind of the practices that they want to do engage in, in those. Before we close our conversation today, is there anything else related to this that we haven't talked about and would be important for us to highlight? I think what's really important, you know, for clinicians and general listeners is to really kind of understand that, like, even though, like, we might have different ways of thinking about sexuality, and even though we might see, quote unquote, sexuality becoming less frequent, I think it's more about adjusting to how people are thinking about their sexualities, because I think we ourselves had to do that. Like, for example, we ourselves had to get used to the idea that there are gay people, lesbians, and people that are trans. So now I think it's now time for us now to understand and readjust our thinking to realize that there it might be a diversity that we might not necessarily be aware of just yet. And I think that's just something that the main takeaway that we all should just sort of, you know, take away from this conversation. Well, I'm glad we had these conversations. And I think it's it's helpful for people to kind of like sometimes look beyond the data. So it's it was at least for me very helpful to have this conversation. And I know I follow you on Instagram. I know that like you have book chapters. One of the most interesting people I met, <laughs> Dr. Ali, you are just so versatile with all of your academic work and all, all aspects <laughs> of life. So if people are interested to learn more about you, I know you have a course. Where can they get a hold of you? So feel free 
remember to contact me at www.gettingwolfy.com. My Instagram is gettingwolfie, Facebook gettingwolfie. And yeah, that's the be it. Awesome. Great. We'll leave a link in the show notes to those, to those handles and kind of links. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. You know, I, I love coming on and talking with you and your insights and how amazing you are, especially dealing with everybody's sex and sexuality. I mean, people need help these days and I'm glad that they're going to you. Oh, thank you. That is so kind of you to say. Likewise. I hope you found our conversation engaging and informative. And I want to hear your thoughts on why you think people are, quote unquote, having less sex or the type of the sex that they were researching on that study. You can send me your responses to my Instagram at Sexology Podcast. And another announcement I have is that I've been posting on a weekly basis on my YouTube channel. I often answer your questions there and I create original video and sometimes we have the video of the interviews there. So if you are curious, make sure you are checking that out. The link is in the show notes. As I mentioned that we recently partnered with Aria. It's a, a sexual wellness concierge program. It's very interesting. I've tried a couple of the subscription box out there. And although I like about the other subscription boxes, what I like about it is that the element of novelty, but I often found that a little bit confusing for my clients, right? That if you want to experiment with something, if you want to bring your fantasies to life and bring newness, you need a little bit of kind of information, guidance. So that's what I love about Aria. So the way it works is that you're signing up and you put your information and your partner's information and you both going to get some text messages, not super frequent, but frequent enough that you remain engaged. And there are going to be a lot of very interesting, cool reading. So you share some of your interests on the app and based on your responses, they curate content for you. What was interesting that I mentioned that I want to experiment with more of a power exchange. That's something that I've tried in the past. And it was so-so when I was trying it because I feel like we didn't have the structure to talk about it the way that was designed at ARIA. So I answered some questions. It sent some of the prompts to my husband and then it gives you information on how to be dominant. If you want to be a dominant, how to surrender if, if you like to be submissive. And it gives lots of interesting scenarios that are sexy and hot and they're like mild, medium, hot stories that you can listen and then you will receive a very interesting curated box. And in the box, there was a blindfold, there were a couple balls, there was an oil. There was a few very interesting 
thing and it tells you exactly what are some of the options that you can experiment with with the box. So the focus of the box was incorporating sensation play. So we got a very interesting, very high quality blindfold. It was an aroma spheres and that which was surprising. I was like, okay, I don't I'm not sure about that, but okay, we'll try it. There was pinwheel and there was tons of other interesting things inside. And what we did is it gives you a little bit of guidance and you can talk about it with your partner and then you can enact that scene however you want. It gives you lots of good options as far as what can you try, what they recommend, and then you get to talk about it with your partner. To me, it was amazing because it was structured enough that it helps us to have some deeper conversation because it talks about psychology of taking leadership in the room, psychology of being submissive and different aspects of it. But also it was fun and playful and it gives you everything you would need, even a playlist. So the playlist they had in a Spotify. Overall, it was a very, very interesting experience. I loved it. And the quality of the product they sent was really good because again, some of the subscription boxes that I get, it's a kind of novelty box. So you get to use the material once and they break afterward. But this was a high quality box and there are prompts to talk about what what was it like for you with your partner? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? So if you are interested to experiment with bringing novelty into the bedroom, if you have type of sexual fantasies that you're curious about, this would be an excellent place to kind of examine that and share that with your partner in a safe environment. You can check it out. The website is aria.com. FYI, and you can put your email information there and you can go from there. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and I will see you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.